verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Imagine many of you can, uh, you probably could hum the first eight verses. It's... Um, it's not really a surprise that many of you have heard uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8. It was actually a number one hit in, in 1965, but it continues to be played, turn, turn, turn. Um, it actually was written, uh, it was made a hit by the birds, uh, that is with a Y, not an I. And, um, but it was written by a man by the name of Pete Seeger back in the 50s. And what he did was he lifted those eight verses right out of the text, and he, he only added about six or seven words to it. The part that he added was simply the, a time for peace, it's not too late, <clears throat> and of course, turn, turn, turn. Uh, the, the irony is that he wrote that song, he didn't write it, he actually took it out of Ecclesiastes, but <clears throat> he added to it as a plea, <clears throat> excuse me, a plea for peace. It was kind of one of these, it wasn't an anti-war song, but it was a plea for peace, world peace. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, uh, he, didn't, he didn't write it for that. But he did write it so that we'd have wisdom in this world, that we could live with peace with one another. Remember how Ecclesiastes speaks to the nature of this world as it is. It's very relevant. It's very now. It's very understandable. You know, we do not live in Eden. That is an obvious truth. 
We don't live in a world that God has made that is, <clears throat> everything happens as it's supposed to happen. And we don't live in the new heavens, and don't, don't live in the new earth that will come one day. We live in what we call exile. We live in the wilderness. We live in a land where, where people are born and they die, where they weep and they laugh. They mourn and they dance. This is the nature of the world that we live in. And, and the preacher here is trying to give us wisdom how to live in this world. Now, in the first couple chapters, uh, we looked at the various attempts to find meaning in life. We all want it. We all want to be satisfied. Look at wisdom. We looked at pleasure. We looked at work. But now the preacher shifts gears in chapter 3, and he speaks to the nature of life. He's really making some critical observations. How do we live with wisdom in this world? Uh, so when you look at this passage that was read, he first looks at, at the nature of life. In other words, there's a time for everything. Here is life as we live it. And then he's going to look at the purpose for everything, that God is sovereignly moving through the events of our lives to make things beautiful. And then thirdly, that there is a response. We are moral agents. We have a response to make to everything that comes into our life. And he'll speak about that as well. So really three steps we're going to move in this little drama. But, but first, let's understand that there's a time for everything. Let's understand the nature of life. Look with me back in verse 1. <clears throat> he says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. Uh, so he, he's not giving us a prescription to life. You don't necessarily do these things. Uh, th these are things that happen to us. It's part of this world that all of us live in. I mean, all of us, experiences the, all of us experience these things in one degree or another. I I he gives the details of this life in verses 2 to 8. There's no real order to it. You see how it begins. There's a, porn, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. Uh, so that kind of shows us the totality of life that he's speaking about. But then in verses 2 through 8, the rest of this, he, he kind of goes into the details of it. But there's no real order to it. I, I guess it, we could put it in this order. There are some things in this life that are a delight. And there are some things in this life that you and I will experience that are very disquieting, very despairing. Uh, look at the list. Some of the things that are delights to us. You know, the birth of a child, a time to plant, a time to heal, a time to build up, laugh, dance, embrace, seek, to sow, to create, to gather stones, to build, to speak, to love, a time of peace. These are things in our life that we all experience that are delights to us. They're good things. We should rejoice over them. Uh, but this world also has times of despair, times of disquiet. Look with me. You, many of you have walked through these. A time to pluck up what was once planted, to kill, to break down, to weep, to mourn, to cast away stones, the breaking down of things, a time to lose, tear, uh, to hate, and to war. You know, when you read this list in isolation, it can kind of sound despairing, actually meaningless. Uh, there are delights and there are despairs. They seem to cancel each other out. One comes, one goes. You almost feel as, what's the point of it all? And in a way, when you read Ecclesiastes, this is why I think it's so real, it's so now, because we've all experienced these things. You know, that, that, that sense of, does anything really matter? There's, this, there's almost a, a monotonous 
repetitive. You, you know, it's, there's almost an oppressive drive to a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for this, a time for that. It, it almost just goes on and on. It reminds you of chapter one when he says, you know, generations come, generations go. The sun rises, the sun sets. The wind blows where it goes and comes back to where it returns. The rains come down, fill the streams, streams go back up to the rain. Over and over and over. It, it, it seems almost, almost you know, destructively monotonous. But not just, it, it, it seems meaningless also because of its unpredictability. You don't know when a time of mourning is coming. You don't know when you get a phone call. All of a sudden, you were just laughing just a minute ago, but now you just heard this news and now you're crying. You can't control that. These things come to us. They leave us. We don't, they, they don't ask for our consent to invade our lives. They just come in full force. Kind of leaves you like, what is the point of it all? I mean, does, does anything really matter that matters? And this is why many people end up moving towards a, a position, what we call deism, to be a deist. A, a deist is a person who believes in God and who believes that God has created all things, and then he sets it in motion, and as it goes, it goes. You know, the old example is the divine watchmaker. You know, he creates the watch, God winds up the watch, and then he lets it run. And when it runs, it runs, and when it runs out, it runs out. That's what it kind of feels like. He's uninvolved. It's just eh, time to weep, eh, it's time to laugh now. It's time to mourn yesterday, well, now we can dance about life. Things have changed for us. There's a certain driving toward meaninglessness here. Blaise Pascal, I've quoted him a few times because he was a philosopher, a French philosopher. And he wrote these words. He says, when I consider the short duration of my life, swallowed up in the eternity before and after, the little space which I fill, and even can see engulfed in the infinite immensity of spaces of which I'm ignorant, and which know me not. I'm frightened, and I'm astonished at being here rather than there. For there is no reason why here rather than there. Why now rather than then? Who put me here? By whose order and direction has this place and time been allotted to me? That's kind of the questions we end up with. So, so, so if you're struggling over life, if you're here and you're just puzzled over what, what gives, what matters, what's meaningful, it's a natural takeaway from this life under the sun. We do struggle with it. We do, we do wonder about it. Now, if the preacher stopped here, you know, we could, like, the, like verse 9 says, what gain does the, does the worker have from his toil? You know, and remember this in Scripture. When you see a question in Scripture, and it's asked usually by God or the preacher, it's not there because they don't know the answer. It's usually there for us to, yeah, so what do I gain? And the implication is, if we stopped in nine, you don't gain much. You gain a short window of maybe some joy, maybe some despair, whatever. It's going to be the big whatever, and then you move on. But the preacher goes on. So, so when you look at there's a time for everything, you can identify with those eight verses. That is the nature of life that we experience in this world of exile. But the preacher goes on to show that there's a purpose. And you see a hint of it in verse 1. 
In verse 1, look back at it with me. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, before the first two chapters, it was always under the sun, but now it's under heaven. Why under heaven? He's introducing God. He's introducing God to the equation. That all this stuff that we just read about, it all happens under heaven. It happens under his watch. It, it happens under his sovereignty. It happens under his governorship. And that's what we're going to find in 10 and 11, that, that in fact, all these things do happen, but they do matter. Yeah, everything matters. Everything matters. Look with me at 10 and 11. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. It's like a fresh breeze comes in when all of a sudden God steps on. This life of seeming delight, despair, delight, despair, the yo-yo life that we live, and then boom, God comes into it. And this is the business he has given to man. God has ordered these things. God has brought about the things that come into our lives. That's what he says. You can't control your birth. You can't control your death. Divine actions always precede human experiences. And that's what he's saying here, that God has ordered. There is a time of weeping. There is a time of mourning. God is orchestrating these things so as to make all things beautiful in their time. He uses the same language in one. You see everything in its time, and God makes everything beautiful in its time. So all the things articulated in two to eight, God will take those and make them perfect and beautiful in your life in its time. Now listen, when you go through that list, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want all of those. So if we were going through a buffet line, you would say, well, yeah, I like the time to plant. I like the time to heal. I like the time to laugh and the time to dance and seek and keep and sow and speak. I don't want any of the plucking up. I don't want the killing. I don't want the breaking down, the weeping, the mourning, the casting away. That's not what... But God uses both. He uses all the ingredients of our lives to bring about making all things beautiful. When he says beautiful, I don't think he means like an intrinsic beauty, like a rose or a sunset. He's talking about more of a fittedness to our life. That God is using innumerable processes. He's using all the different events in your life, even the events that you would walk straight away from. He's using these to make you, his image bearer, a beautiful masterpiece. God is going to achieve his ends in your life through these different events. That's what the preacher's saying. That all of these events work together for that good in you. All the events. Even the events that you wouldn't choose. Now, now he gives us a glimpse of this, because you see it in verse 11. Look with me in 11. He says, he has put eternity into man's heart. He cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, we kind of know this. God has created us with eternity. When he speaks about eternity, that, that word means past, present. It means kind of an everlasting. We have in us the capacity to understand past and present and future. We have in us a desire to know things beyond the present. We've been wired that way by God. God has given us a desire to trace out providential dealings. We're not like the animal. The animal, the dog, lives in today. 
He doesn't think about the concerns from last week that have been resolved. He's not worried about next week. He's not worried about next month. You and I, we look backwards and we ask why. Why did these things happen? What are you doing? We're trying to relate the earthly circumstances to heavenly purposes. We look forward and we say, what will be? What's going to happen? We have this capacity given to us by God. To, to see, God, how are you working out the weeping and the rejoicing, the mourning and the dancing? Uh, this is the way we've been built. We've been wired. But we don't know it all. Uh, we don't know. He says, he says, I've set eternity in the heart of man, but he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We see part of things. We have a, a, a partial understanding of what God may be doing, but we don't have a full understanding of it. But we can see, right? So when I take up some of the old pictures of our children and I see them when they just were like babies, when now I see what God has done, I see all the work of God in their lives, I've seen where they are now. You know, 30 plus years later, I see what they've become. You know, I, I, I understand things better now. I, 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 can under, I can't understand at all. I don't know why he's done everything he has done in their lives, but I see <clears throat> the outworking in a partial way. And I see, so God has given this to us so that we might see how he makes all things beautiful. He's giving us a glimpse of his work. Now, for some of you, this should bring comfort. This should make you happy people to know that there is a sovereign God who is working all things out to a good end. You cannot see his hand moving, but you can see the effect of his spirit on those around you. We can trust him. We can rest. So when times of mourning come, you can know. No, no, no. This is going to achieve a beautiful end. I don't see it yet. Don't understand it all. But I have seen what he's done in the past. I can trust him in this. We can be like children before God, really. You know, my children never worried about, are they going to be fed next week? Will the heating bill be paid so that the house is warm? They didn't, as children, they didn't worry. They understood a little bit, but they had a fairly stress-free life because their parents managed it. Well, we are like children before God, where God is managing, bringing all things to a beautiful end. We can rest. It doesn't mean that we don't suffer. We do. The suffering that we experience is real, but it also is achieving a real and a beautiful end. So we draw comfort. But some of you here may find this confounding. This idea that you can't figure it out. <clears throat> that you don't know if you trust God. That this weeping and laughing and mourning and dancing and loving and hating. And, and it's too much. I, you don't get it. It seems haphazard. It seems to argue against God rather than argue for God. I, I understand. I mean, it would be like, so J.I. Packer, British theologian, he, he gives this example about trying to understand God. And, and he says it's like going to this train station, this York train station in York, England. And it's a big station, and if you're a train enthusiast, you can be sitting on the platform, and you see some trains moving, some, some trains stop, some trains backing up. You have no idea, you see all this movement, you have no idea what it, what's going on. You can't make sense of anything. But if you were to be invited up to the signal box, 
up to where the train manager sits. And he sees on this huge board five miles of track on each side of the station. And each train is lit up by this little glowing light. And he has all the orders and all the train schedules in front of him and why things are moving and stopping. Then you'd understand. But we're not invited into the signal box. We don't know these things. So if you're confounded, I would encourage you to to ask God to give greater wisdom. You won't know the beginning to the end, but, but ask him that he might reveal more to you. I, I think it's actually an invitation to come to God. I think God has given to us, by his initiative, a heart that has eternity set in it so that you will seek him, that you want to know the answers that you want to know that there's more meaning to life than just weeping and, and laughing and, and mourning and dancing. You want to know that. And I think that we have record in the Scriptures of how God does this. In other words, how does God make all things beautiful? That, you may ask that question. Well, what example in Scripture do we have? Well, let me give you one. The whole of the work of God. How does he make things beautiful? Think about the Bible for just a minute with me. You know, the Bible, we often... And here, preach sections of Scripture, trying to understand it and how they relate to one another. But think about, just take a step back and look at the Bible as a whole. What is the Bible about? It's really God's story of redemption. right? So you have in the beginning God creating the heavens and the earth, and he appoints this man and woman to be kind of vice regents over everything. He gives them great authority to, to you know, exercise dominion, to subdue the earth, be fruitful, multiply. He gives them all the gifts, everything they need. And you see in their hearts, though, this waywardness that we want to be in charge. We want to be God. They, they rebel. We see it in our own hearts. All I need to do is say, you can't do that. And what, who, you want to do it. You feel an immediate uptick. You can't tell me I can't do it. Every one of us has that same kind of spirit movement of rebellion. Well, they rebel against God. And, of course, God, he takes them out of Eden and he puts them in the wilderness. And there you see death and murder, and rage, and bitterness, and envy all begin to bloom quite nicely in the wilderness. But God had always promised to send a servant, to send a Messiah, to send one to deliver us from the wilderness, from the exile. And you see it in promises in Genesis 3. You see it in Abraham. He's going to have a seed. The whole world will be blessed through his seed. And then David's going to have a son, the same son that Abraham. It's the seed going through this Promise like a thread running all the way through the carpet. And then David's going to have a son who's going to have a king, but this king is going to be a suffering king. He's going to actually be kind of like a servant king, and he's going to suffer for So you see these promises. And it's going to happen in God's time when he comes to deliver. And so this is why Paul picks up in the New Testament. He says, when he speaks about Jesus Christ, he says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth a son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those under the law, and give them full rights as sons in the fullness of time. 28 times we just read time. God is sovereign over time. He does things in time. In the fullness of time, he sent a son. And Jesus knew this. Jesus was very conversant with time. Jesus, as the Father, directed time. How do we know that? He directed the entrance of his ministry. Jesus, the first preached words were, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus knew when he was starting his ministry. He knew the time. He knew when his betrayer would betray him. He says, go do what you have to do, he says to Judas. 
He says to Peter, you will deny me twice before the rooster crows. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. He knew exactly the time of his denial. He knew the time of his own death. When he sent his servants to get the room for the Passover celebration, he goes, now is the time appointed for me. So God makes all things beautiful in his time. He does this through the cross. How does he make things beautiful? How is he going to turn the weeping into, into dancing and the, and the mourning into, into laughing and rejoicing? How is he going to turn life or death into life? Through the cross. It is through the cross of Christ, him bearing our sins, him standing in our place before God, bearing the judgment of God for our sins, that he makes all things beautiful. He begins to, if you will, roll back what brought us into wilderness. If you think the sin brought the curse and the curse is evidenced in the wilderness, he takes the sin. He brings forgiveness. And then he brings new life, meaning, value, purpose. So, so if, you, if you are wondering, how do I find meaning and purpose to life? Well, it's being rightly reconciled with the one who has given you life. You'll never find purpose apart from God, your creator. And the only way to be reconciled to God, your creator, is through the one who came in time and space to save us and to reconcile us by bearing our sins. That's the gospel. That's how we become Christians. That's how our lives pick up meaning and value and purpose. Because now we're back with our father. It's like the, it's like the prodigal son. He came, I'm finally home. Now. I can have peace and joy and happiness. So that's the message of the preacher. He simply says this. This is the nature of life. There's a time for everything. The nature of life is it's a mixture of delight and despair. But there is a purpose that God has in this that he's working out to make all things beautiful. So what do we do? Right now, if you're here and, and you're looking at these things, you're a Christian, you say, well, what do I do now? We're still in exile. The new heavens and the new earth have not come so what do I do now? Well, he tells us. He's giving us wisdom. Here's how you live in the wilderness until he comes. Look with me at 12 and 13. First thing he says is to be happy. I love that. These, you know, kind of the repression that we feel as Christians sometimes. I feel like shackles are removed. He says in 12 and 13, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. This is what he's instructing us. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, we touched on this last week, but let me just explain a little bit further. He's not saying, he's really talking about Christian hedonism, if you will, a term often used <clears throat> in evangelicalism. He's talking about being happy with the things that we have. He's not talking this self-centered hedonism, where I'm just consuming in greedy fashion so that I can find fulfillment for myself. That whatever is in my view, I'm going to grab it for my joy. No, no, no. He's saying to be happy in all the things that you have, the food, the drink, the work, the intimacy with your spouse, the relationships that you have, the times of laughter, the times of joy, the times of planning. Be happy in those because they're gifts of God. Your happiness is really an act of faith that you believe God has given it to you. you these good things that we're to be happy about as coming from God they're to sustain us when we're weeping when we're mourning and when we're struggling 
when the time to die. These things sustain us. In fact, one author said it this way. He says, life's sweet moments keep us balanced, reminding us that not all is lost. If you can see light today, embrace it, savor it, celebrate it, use it in your fight for a God-focused joy. If you find yourself in one of the dark days of this life, struggling to discern God's purposes, pause to recall a past mercy. See it as a gift of God and use it to instill a heightened desire and hope for the new mercies at dawn. That's what Carol and I do all the time. We look back at life. We love, the, we love this little walk down memory lane. We love to remember where we were 30, 40 years ago. And we just marvel over what God has done. What am I doing as a preacher? If you're asking the same question, that's a problem. But I ask the question because I know what my history was like. I know where I was. I, I, Carol and I were laughing about it last night. She goes, I think I prayed the first three years you were preaching in Michigan. I couldn't believe the man that I married. God had done such a radical... Re so those acts of mercy, they sustain us when we go through these trials of the past two years. Uh, it, when, when we go through the, the visits, the hospital, and all that stuff, it's sustained. This is what God's done. He's not going to abandon us now. Uh, what he did back then is sustaining me with joy in the midst of times of great sadness and mourning. So, so we've we got to know our own history, what God has done with us. Uh, I go back all the God's been faithful, 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 faithful. He did things in our life that we never asked him to, but we're thankful because they're beautiful. And some of the ugly things, they've been made beautiful. And we now have the length of life to see it. So be joyful. Remember, the secularist is often given credit for kind of enjoying life to the fullest. The Christians are often seen as kind of repressive. And you can't have fun. And, and, and if you have joy, there's got to be something wrong with it. Cast that aside. Have joy as it's a gift from God. Not that it's just yours to consume, but God, you have revealed yourself to me through your kindnesses. Interesting song from Isaac Watts. This is hundreds of years ago. He writes this, he says, the song is, Come we that love the Lord, and let our joys be known. He says, The sorrows of the mind be banished from place. Religion was never designed to make our pleasure less. He says, let those who refuse to sing who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king may speak their joys abroad. Let our songs abound and every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground to fairer worlds on high. He's saying that we, those who know God deepest, should be happiest. Because we know that times of mourning will give way to times of laughing. We're the only ones that know that. Everybody else stuck in chapter 3, 1 to 8? They don't know. They don't know when times of mourning are coming. They don't know when the despair is going to come wipe out the delight. But we know that even despair will be made into delight. So how do we live in this life? We're happy people. I mean, when you have that plate of food and you enjoy it, God, thank you for this. When you have a wonderful day at work, God, thank you for this. When you're struggling, even at work, you're remembering, oh, he's been faithful. He'll deliver me out of this. He'll make even this, this mess that I'm in right now, he's going to make it beautiful. I know he's going to be, because he's sovereign. And this is the second thing we do. We fear God. We fear God. Look with me in 14 and 15. He says, I perceived, you see the parallelism there with 
12 and 13. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. God exercises his sovereignty so that we would fear him. L listen, if, if we don't have God, you have right reason to fear all kinds of things in front of you. But what he's saying here is what God does endures. If God is sovereignly moving to make all things beautiful, it will endure. Nothing will stop it. No, you can't add to it. You can't make it a little bit better by your efforts. And you can't detract from it. You can't make it a little bit less through your failure to participate. God's going to do it. I mean, think about that. This is why we fear him. God will bring all things to their perfect end. But for some of us, you know, we don't fear God. We fear all kinds of things. I mean, if all of a sudden, a, you know, a lightning bolt struck by, you, I mean, who doesn't jump, you know, or that, that unexpected thunderclap, boy, you come out of your chair. Or, or now we have coronavirus. You, you know, you have, all, you have the Middle East. You have the political theater that we live with. You have China. You have all kinds of issues to fear. And we look at those and we wonder about our financial security, our health crises, and we fear those things. They keep us up at night, but we don't fear the one who can separate light and darkness. We don't fear God. We don't fear the one who at one moment can just draw our breath away. A ask God. I mean, look to God and ask him, help me to fear you. And ask him gently and, and ask him very humbly. God, help me to fear your name. When I talk about fear, I'm not talking about a fright. I'm not talking about scared like you might have if you're startled. A, a fear is like a holy reverence. One author said, it, it's, it's moving away from the illusion that you're self-sufficient and you're independent. It's backing away from this idea that I, I really am, you know, I can pull myself up. I can do it on my own. It's that independent streak that we have. Cast that away. It's full commitment to God. It's trusting that he is sovereignly good. So we fear him and we revere him. It's an affectionate reverence. Like if you can imagine the perfect father that you could have, there's a respect, there's an authority that you grant to him, but there's a sense of closeness and love because he's what he has done for us in Christ. So he says two things. How do we respond to this? Well, we are joy-filled people. So have you been joyful this past week? Have you thanked God for all the gifts, the time of laughing, the time of dancing, the food that you've eaten, the intimacy that you've shared with your spouse and, and the intimacy with other friends? Have you thanked him for those things? And do you fear him? Look back on your life. I mean, think how precarious your life is. Fear God. You know, Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. Ask God to grant you greater fear. So what we have here in these 15 verses is we really have a, a statement on the nature of life. It's filled with delight and despair. These are the times in which we live. It's our, all of us. And then we have the promises of God that he's going to make these times beautiful. Even the ugly things. He's going to make things beautiful in its time. That's the promise of a sovereign God. And we see that he's done that through Christ. And then how do we live then in light of this coming Messiah? We live both with joy in all the things that we have as gifts from God. And we live in fear 
We live in fear, knowing that God, even right now, is working all things out. The way he's organizing and orchestrating your life is to cause you to fear him. Wow, God, I'm going to take one step back before I complain about my life, and I'm just going to trust that you're working things out to a beautiful end. Let me pray for us before we celebrate the table.